All right, good morning, everybody. If you were in the fourth or fifth grade, you are dismissed to your class. Fourth and fifth graders, feel free to move on to your class. For the rest of us, I want to pick up where we kind of left off last week. If you were here last week on the New Year's Day, what we decided to do is talk about receiving on New Year's Day a brand new start. So just even spiritually, allowing ourselves a restart button from all the things that have gone before us, and in that to decide what are the things from 2011 that we don't need to carry into a brand new year. What are those things, whether it be thought patterns, life habits, sins, relationships, what are the things that we know are holding us back that we don't need to bring into a brand new year. So hopefully after a week you've had a good week. Let me say this, if you found over the past week that thing that you wrote down that you didn't want to be a part of 2012, if this week you've discovered it once again became a part of your 2012, let me encourage you in this. Do not be overwhelmed with that and do not let Satan move you to a place of guilt and shame and keep you there. Here's what you need to do. Just simply in God's grace, just receive his forgiveness and commit yourself once again to repenting and renouncing those things that we don't want in a new year. And don't waste that failure. Don't waste the opportunity of being able to ask the questions of why did this happen and what were the triggering things that made that happen and what were the circumstances and what were my thoughts and allow it to be a moment for you to really think through why does this seem to keep coming back in my life but don't be over I found that in my own life anytime I move to a place of guilt and shame and I can't get out of it it makes it worse and so don't allow yourself to go there Satan does all sorts of terrible things to us in that moment just go ahead and release it back to Jesus and start all over again it's okay that's what he allows us to do by his grace but then we went on to talk about using Jesus' story about that strong man needing to be overpowered by the strong strongest man, that it's not just about repenting and renouncing things, it's also about filling our lives up with Jesus, that Jesus is the strongest man, and we need to invite him into every aspect of our life. The analogy he uses is the house, and so every room in our house, the bedroom, the basement, the closet, the living room, the dining room, every, house, every room in our house needs to be totally filled up with the presence of Jesus, and in that, it will do for some remarkable things for us in a brand new year. So I want to talk about that idea of filling ourselves up with the Lord Jesus Christ, and over the next two weeks, kind of talk about some tools, some means to do that in. And so this morning, we want to talk about the scriptures itself. We want to talk about the Bible and how it is that we can use the scriptures to fill our heart up and our life up and all the rooms of our house up with Jesus himself. And the Bible, as you know, in terms of history, has gotten a lot of people killed like just for their interpretation, or even for things like trying to bring it to us in the English language. People had to give their lives, and so it has had uh, quite a history. What I love in terms of the Bible itself is in the Psalms, you've got King David, as he writes the Psalms, will write Psalms in praise to God's law and God's commands and the Word of God. And he talks about, he meditates on it day and night. And so there's this love that King David expresses for the commands and laws of God, which as you read it kind of sounds funny because in my mind, laws and commands are not usually things that I give thanks for. Like rules are not my top list of, ooh, thank you God for that. Yet King David recognizes that in the scriptures, what we have is God revealing himself to us, his heart, his character, his purposes. And as he contrasts that with other religions that exist in his day and age, what he recognizes is it is God's grace and his mercy that he would reveal himself to us because you had other religions that didn't have such revelation. And so they had to just guess what their God was pleased with or wasn't pleased with, and they had to do all sorts of extreme measures to appease their God. And so they did all sorts of things from sacrifice to behaviors, hoping it would appease their gods. What King David says is, we have a God that we don't have to guess what he wants or what his heart's desire is or his intention for our life or who he is or who his character is. He's revealed it to us. And that is, in fact, good news. That is something to celebrate and to praise God that he wouldn't leave us guessing. He would tell us about himself. He would reveal himself and celebrate 
some sort of way. And so when we come to the scriptures, we recognize that we want to be able to say, no, we, we begin by thanking you, God, that you would not leave us guessing, that you would reveal yourself, what you love, what your heart's about, what your character's all about, and in that, it's not guesswork for us. But I'd like to begin by putting the Bible into its proper context in regards to the place of the spiritual life. And I, I want to say, but first, I'm not sure I'm a real fan of studying the Bible for its own sake. Just in and of itself, studying the Bible, I'm not sure if I'm a huge fan. My guess is if you were to ask a church why it has Bible studies or what the point of Bible studies seems to be, I'm going to guess that you'd have a hard time getting a good answer back. And when I think about my own upbringing, even when I moved here 15 years ago, we had, let's see, we had Sunday morning Bible class, Sunday school on Sunday morning, and then we had a sermon on Sunday morning during the worship hour, and then we came back on Sunday night for another Bible study in the, in the sermon on Sunday evening, and then on Wednesday nights we gathered together to have a Bible class, and then if you were involved in a small group, you would have another Bible study on top of that. And so Bible study was just over and over again a part of the rhythm in the life in terms of growing up and what I was used to experiencing, but nobody ever asked the question, but why? Why would you have Sunday morning, Sunday morning, Sunday, Sunday night, Wednesday night, small group? Why would you have all those sorts of Bible studies? And in the end, it just feels like, I don't know, it's just one of those things you're supposed to do when you become a Christian. It kind of goes on that list, that checklist of, well, I'm a Christian now, so I guess I'm supposed to study the Bible. But I want to ask the question behind that is, why? Why should we study the Scripture? Because if we don't have a why to all of that activity, then the danger is it becomes just a rote activity that is missing both clarity and purpose. And I think that's really what has happened to a lot of Christians. We get that checklist. It includes read your Bible. We start thinking, oh, I guess that's what I'm supposed to do. But we never stop and ask why. So is it to gain more knowledge? To which I'd say, maybe. But I'm telling you, if I could just figure out, apply the knowledge I already have, my life would be a whole lot. But I, I'm not sure knowledge is our issue. Like, was it Mark Twain that said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that worry me? It's the parts I do understand. It's like, if we could just get down, like, loving God and loving our neighbor, like, that would be... So I'm not sure knowledge in the end is it. In fact, the Bible itself tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, what does knowledge do? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And maybe you've experienced this as a Christian, where you start to immerse yourself into the Word and start to get to know... You, like, get knowledge about the Bible, about God, and instead of it transforming your life, you get more judgmental or more condemning or meaner. Have you ever seen that happen in individuals or churches? Like, sometimes I've seen that happen. I've experienced that in my own life where as soon as you get knowledge, you just want to debate everybody. You just want to take on everybody. And, and like, whole corporate spirits and churches I've seen become meaner in terms of their knowledge. They become more legalistic, more condemning, more angry. And I'm just going to say this is the truth. If you're reading the Bible and it's making you meaner, you're reading it wrong. Like, can we just agree on that this morning? Even if you get it, like, even if you understand it, but it's making you meaner, then you're reading it wrong. So why is it then that we read the Bible? And I, I'd suggest to you, this is, this is the reason why we immerse ourselves into the Scripture. It is simply to passionately pursue God. It is to passionately, it's not to make ourselves grow, and ooh, look at how smart we are now. It's not, to, I mean, it is, we are in a pursuit of God. This is what we talked about last week, about filling our life up with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we're going to do that, if we're going to pursue Jesus, if we're going to pursue God, have a passionate pursuit for Him, then it means that we will have to then go to the Word in fact, it's sort of like, I think of the Bible oftentimes, like, let me use this as an illustration. Last summer, Kelly and I went to Chicago for a few days. We love to go to Chicago. Um, and we were in the theater district downtown, and uh, we're hungry. And so we thought, well, let's go to a restaurant downtown. And so we went to a place called Rosebud. Anyone hear Rosebud in Chicago? 
Highly recommended if you ever get a chance. But they have a restaurant in the theater district, so Kelly, oh, let's go here. So we go into this restaurant, and we were wearing, like, shorts and a T-shirt and recognized very quickly we were by far the most underdressed people in the restaurant. But that didn't deter us, as it normally does it when good food is about. But here's the thing with Rosebud. When you walk in, when you get there, you are lost in terms of what you're doing there, in terms of what you're about to eat, until what happens? Until either the host or the waiter hands you what? A menu. And all of a sudden, you can open up the menu, and all of a sudden, you get to see all the glorious possibilities of meals that are waiting for you, right? And let me tell you, this picture does not do justice whatsoever. In fact, you're thinking, that doesn't look good at all. But no, I mean, and so what, what happens is that menu is the thing that leads us to the meal. It's the thing that will guide us to what it is that we're actually there for. And I think the scriptures are kind of like that. The Bible is not our meal. Jesus is the meal. But the scripture is the menu that leads us to know what it is that we're about to partake in. It's the scriptures that the menu that lays out for us. These are all the divine possibilities in your life because of who God is and who you are. It's the thing that ushers us into that thing that we get to finally enjoy. And if we mess this up and think that the Bible is, in fact, the meal, then we'll have all sorts of implications and we'll mess things up royally. In fact, I think you could see this every once in a while in scripture. One particular is in the Gospel of John, chapter 5. Now, here's a story where Jesus is encountering the Pharisees, and the New Living Translation says this, but I have a greater witness than John, my teachings and my miracles. Now, they're they're asking Jesus about, well, how do we know you're who you say you are? How do we know you're, I mean, and what he says is, listen, they want a witness. And he says, I've got a witness greater than John. Look at my teachings and look at the miracles themselves. The Father gave me these works to accomplish, and they prove that he sent me. And the Father who sent me has testified about me himself you have never heard you have never heard his voice or seen him face to face and you do not have his message in your hearts because you do not believe me the one he sent to you you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life but the scriptures point to me yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life now this is an amazing teaching here because one Jesus talking to the Pharisees and you know what the Pharisees would do in terms of their devotion to the law they would commit it to memory. Like, like literally, in Jesus' day, there were Pharisees who had the entire Old Testament committed to memory. And if you go back into Hebrew history, they did so typically through song and chant. It was sort of a technique to get them to... And so he was talking to people who could possibly have the entire Old Testament committed to memory. Could you imagine such an exercise? I mean, Genesis, I mean, the, even Leviticus to memory. And Jesus looks at them and says, you have never heard the voice of my father, nor are his words in your heart. Could you imagine how offensive that would be to somebody who had memorized the entire Old Testament to have somebody say, you don't, you've never heard from God. Are you kidding me? I've memorized the whole thing. Yet Jesus knows they had the wrong perspective. They thought that the word that they were reading was the meal, that it was, and Jesus, no, 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 this points to me. I am the meal. My father is the meal. That's just simply the menu. We don't ignore it. It's very vital. It's very important. But it's about putting it in its proper context and perspective so they don't get those two things confused. Because in the end, you'll move to legalism and to being puffed up and to being pharisaic, right? That word, to being condemning and being judgmental instead of rather enjoying and basking in what God intended from, from the very beginning. That this would lead us to him and to his heart and to his character. That would cause us to love him all the more. So I want to challenge you to have as your primary goal a radical pursuit of Jesus. 
to know him like you've never known him before, to understand him like you've never before, to be so intimately familiar with his heart and his character and his thoughts and his voice. I mean, like the tone and character and quality of his voice that you would never mistake it for anyone else's. And you probably know this, right? In your most intimate relationships, you know that, like, say you're married, you know your spouse has a tone of voice and a quality of voice and a character of voice that when you know them to such intimacies, you will never be, you'll never be fooled by any other voice, right? Like if Ann Lynn came into my office and said, hey, your wife called, and she said, you better, remember, it went off, I'd be like, that's not my wife at all. That's not her tone. That's not the quality of her voice. That's not the character of her voice. I mean, that's how intimately we want to know Jesus, that we know the tone, the character, and quality of his voice that will never be fooled or mistake it for anything else. And Jesus himself says this to us in the Gospel of John, chapter 10. He says in verse 3, The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own sheep, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. And Jesus uses figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. But we can understand. Listen. Back in the first century, because of the scarcity of like grass and areas to kind of graze, for the sheep to graze, oftentimes shepherds would, multiple shepherds would bring multiple flocks together into the same grazing area, but every shepherd had their own distinct call, and their sheep knew that call. And so when it was time for a shepherd to leave with his particular flock, the shepherd would give that distinctive call, and only his sheep who knew his voice and knew that call then would follow that shepherd wherever it was that they were taking place. And this is the analogy, the metaphor that Jesus is using, that we will know his voice so intimately that if a stranger ever walked in, and we go, that's not Jesus' voice. And so this is important for us in the spiritual life because we're going to hear voices all the time. And I don't mean like you're crazy, although we might be, but I'm just saying, I, I mean, that Satan will try to say things to us, and we, want, we don't want to be fooled into, was that Jesus' voice? And we're not really sure. We want to know Jesus' voice so intimately that when we hear Satan's voice, we'll know exactly whose it is. We'll know, that's not my Savior. That doesn't belong to him. Or sometimes it's my own voice. I don't know if you've ever get caught up in that where in my prayer time and I hear from the Lord, is that me? Am I thinking, this is my own thoughts, this, could, this is my own. I, see, I, I want to know my voice and I want to know the distinction between my voice and Jesus' voice so I don't ever get those two things confused because my voice isn't nearly as important as Jesus' voice and what is his voice saying? And I don't want to be, and sometimes it's just in our upbringing and our growing up, we have tapes playing in our head that are, have those voices. It might be your wicked stepfather that you grew up with that told you you're no good and you're stupid. You're, I, whatever those voices are, we want to be able to say, that's not Jesus' voice. This is what Jesus' voice sounds like, and I will never be fooled by anything else. Imagine a world of rescue that would happen if every professed disciple of Jesus got to know their master to such a degree that they knew him that intimately and that deeply. So if you want to go deeper, you're going to need to pick up the menu that leads you to the meal that is Jesus. So first let me say, why should we go to the Word of God? It's simply because we want to have a passionate pursuit of God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you go to the Scriptures, you're going to need to know that it will prove to need two things, faith and bravery. Like just if we're going to commit ourselves to pursuing Jesus through the Word of God, it's going to mean it will take from us two things, faith and bravery. First, faith. One is, you're going to have to begin with the faith assumption that what you are actually holding in your hands is, in fact, from God. And you know, not everybody believes that, right? Not every, uh, there are some people who believe this is just like any other literature in the history of the world. This is no different than Shakespeare or, you know, right? I mean, 
And so for us, people of faith, it will require from us faith to believe that what we are holding in our hands is, in fact, from the God, the creator of all things. And so within the scripture itself, it calls for that kind of faith. In passages like 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God. Some of your translations, I love this word, says it is God-breathed, which means that God is the origin. It, God is the thing behind our scriptures. He is the one that has inspired it. He is the one that has breathed it out, and it is useful then for teaching and for reproof and for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. Or Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, Peter will say this, first of all, you must understand this, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by human will, but by men and women moved by the Holy Spirit who spoke from God. Or one more, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. Indeed, the Word of God, it is living and active, meaning it's not like anything else you're going to read. It isn't just like, it's not like Shakespeare. It's more, it is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and before him no creature is hidden, but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. Reading the Bible will be an act of faith because it, in it we accept that these are the words of God and they reveal his heart and his character and his intent and his purposes. That is why we call the Bible the revelation of God. And, and what I mean by that, literally, what that revelation word means, it means literally it's an unveiling. It's a disclosure of something previously hidden. It is that God didn't have to, but in his mercy and his grace, he decided to disclose himself, to unveil himself in his creation and in the history of Israel, and in the life of the church, and most predominantly in the person of Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean that it negates all the mysteries of God. I mean, you could read the Bible from cover to cover and understand it, and it still will not negate the fact that our God still is a mysterious God. There are still large questions I have that I can't answer, that I can't explain, and in the end it's because our God is a mysterious God. I don't have him in a box. He's not just some topic to study to its exhaustion. There are aspects of God that we will still bow and say, you are sovereign in your nature, and at times you are mysterious. Secondly, saying that it's revelation and disclosure doesn't mean that it destroys human capabilities in the midst of Scripture. Let me say this about our Bible. When I say that the Bible is God-breathed or inspired, I don't believe that God dictated every word of it. Like, I don't think he sat down with Paul and said, okay, write this. Get a paper and pen, right? I don't think he sat down with Matthew and said, okay, I want you to write this. What I believe is the power of the Holy Spirit was at work in those men and women, and so that you have this tension in the Word of God. You have it being from God, inspired from God, and yet at the same time, the human authors still remain human authors. They still write in their tone and in their language and from their perspective. That's why if you were to know the Greek language, you'll know that John writes totally different than Paul. Different styles. Anyway, then, then you and I, would diff- we'd have different styles, right? You'd say, you're not very good at English, and you'd, say, you'd, have, you'd be much better at it. So, I mean, we'd have different styles, and we'd use different words, we'd use different language, we'd have different perspectives. So when Matthew writes, Matthew will write from his perspective. And being inspired from God doesn't mean that it destroys Matthew's perspective. 
And when Luke writes, Luke will write from his perspective and to his audience. And that's why you have some differences in the gospel. Not that they contradict one another, but one will emphasize this and another one will emphasize that. You'll think, why is that? Because they're writing from their own perspective into totally different audiences. And so Matthew, who's predominantly writing to the Jewish audience, will emphasize a lot of the Old Testament and the Jewish qualities of Jesus. But to Luke, who's writing for a Gentile audience, he'll have entirely different emphasis and different words. Does that make sense? And God doesn't destroy that when he reveals himself behind these human authors. And we, by faith, enter into believing that it is an interactive experience. This is what we talked about here in Hebrews 4.12, that the word of God is living and active. That as we engage with the scripture, as we reflect on scripture, it has the power to go to work in our very lives. And through it, it leads us to the meal that has the power to transform us and to change us. I'm afraid for most Christians, this faith that the Bible is God's word isn't as widely believed as we say. Like, I know on one hand we want to say, no, no, it's the word of God. But I'm just convinced of this. If I told you, hey, I've got a letter in my office to you about your job from God, like, no, God's very words to you about your job, you just couldn't wait to get it. Give me that letter right now. I want to know exactly what's going on. I mean, that's what you'd be. Yeah, when it comes to the Bible, we find we can go weeks, maybe months, and it's sitting on our coffee table collecting dust. And what happens is functionally, I think we betray what we say we believe by our behavior that doesn't really believe this is from God. Because we ignore what we would say then by faith is these are the very words of God for our life and for us instruction. And instead, we become more consumed by reality TV or by sports. And really, I'm, I'm not judging anybody. I'm placing my, like, if I know more about what's going on with Snooky and Vinny on Jersey Shore than I do about Jesus and any of the apostles, that should be a, a, maybe a warning sign that I'm engaged in one and not the other. Does that make sense? And we find that happens in our life all the time where I'm consumed what's going on with Detroit Lions. Not really, but I'm just by, you know, by illustration here. And I know, I know, sorry about yesterday. And I know more about them and their players and how they're doing, what's going on, than I know about what's going on in my own life before Jesus. You see, that's sometimes what we say we believe really is in the end betrayed by what we actually do by way of behavior. And I'd say, yeah, let's just kind of talk about that for a moment. And I know a, a pastor friend who had a Muslim, a real good friend who was a Muslim. And they were together one day and had their stacks of books. I think they were Starbucks. I think it was a story. They were Starbucks together. And the pastor had his Bible and, and other books that he was studying. And then he just kind of stacked them all on top of each other. Like he just had his notebook and had the Bible. And he put a bunch of books on top of that to walk out. And his Muslim friend was watching this and asked him the question about just kind of the ordering. And in the conversation with the Muslim told him was they would never put anything on top of the Koran. Like even if the Koran was large, you know how somebody kind of stack it so it's like you would never put anything on top of the Koran because the Koran in their mind was the holy word of God and you would never profane the Koran by putting something on top of it as if to say it has a lesser priority. Now I'm not saying that's what we ought to do, like just stack your big Bible on top of everything, but it goes back to perspective, it goes back to at least I would say, well at least he has a high view of the scriptures and recognizing at least for him by faith that that is the word of God. The same way that we would say by faith, no, what we hold in our hands, these 66 books are in fact the word of God. And I think the reason why we have a struggle is because sometimes our problem is we're easily confused and thus bored in the midst of the Bible. Can we just be honest for a moment? Like when we start reading the Bible, we, okay, I'm convicted. Sam said we should meet Jesus in the Word, so I'm going to start reading the Word. And you start reading, and it doesn't take long before you're like, I'm lost <laughs> and confused, and I don't know what to do with this. And that snake said, what? And there's a tree, and right. And I get it. We feel removed in some particular way by distance 
and culture and language and circumstance and context. And if you don't believe me, just go home and start reading the book of Leviticus. And you'll see real quick what I'm talking about because you're going to be like, listen, I just don't boil baby goats in anyone's milk, let alone its mother's milk, and I don't get what this is saying to me. You read enough about a man's discharge and how they become clean again, and you're ready to check out. That's in the Word of God, and I get that. And that's why not only do you need faith, but number two, you'll need bravery. Because there is risk in reading the Scripture. It goes back to that Hebrews 4 passage that says, It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. All are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. The Bible, if you'll hang with it, if you'll move past the I'm bored or I'd confuse parts, will probably mess you up. I mean, you need to expect that going into it. It's going to be, it'll be an act of bravery on your part. But this is, these are some of the stages you'll probably face in it. One is you'll have initial excitement. You're like, oh, look at me. I'm reading the Bible. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. But very quickly, you'll move on to that confusion and boredom. I don't understand what that means. I get sleepy when I read it. And then you'll move on to the disequilibrium stage, which you'll get to that. It said, what? I'm supposed to do what? God thinks what? And then in the end, you get to re-equilibrium which you go to, oh, yes, God is at the center, and I trust him in this. The Bible will tell you who God is, and the Bible will tell you who you are, but you have to go the distance in that. It's sort of like a Mr. Miyagi moment. This is one of my favorite illustrations. You know the original Karate Kid, like the good one, the original Karate Kid? Remember that scene where Mr. Miyagi is training Danielson, and he has him waxing the cars and painting the fence and sanding the deck? And Danielson is so frustrated because none of it makes sense. It just, to him, feels like he's just doing a bunch of chores. That's what it feels like. Find this climactic moment in the movie when he's ready to quit and say, forget you, I'm tired of doing your household chores. I could do this in my own apartment. Mr. Miyagi says, show me wax on. All right, that's what he Show me paint the fence. And then Mr. Miyagi starts throwing punches at him. And what Danielson doesn't realize is the entire time he has learned important things about his life and techniques in terms of karate that are now going to be useful, that can all be put together in a way that actually defends himself. The Bible is much like this. It's a Mr. Miyagi moment where in the midst of it, you're going to think, I don't get this. I'm confused. I'm not sure if I'm hanging with this. I feel a little bit sleepy. But if you'll hang with this for just a little bit, you'll see after a while that the spirit is sort of like Mr. Miyagi who's able to come in, and you're going to have a moment where you're going to go, oh, this is where this comes in, and you'll be wax awning and craning, and, and it'll be impressive. <laughs> that Satan will come along, and it's going to be just Scripture. And this is what happens in the life of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, Satan comes to tempt Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He crane kicks Satan with Scripture. Every time Satan comes at him, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So when you're tempted to go back to that sin that you once renounced and repented of last week, when it shows up this week, because you've been in the Word of God, what will happen is the Spirit of God will help you go, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that's right. It's going to come to mind. No temptation has seized me that is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let me be tempted beyond what I can bear. But when I am tempted, he's going to provide a way out so you can stand up underneath it. So when that temptation comes up, that scripture will come into your mind and you'll know there's a way out of this. And you'll be able to find it because you know it's there. And in the midst of it, it's a crane kick to Satan. Or when you start to feel guilty and condemnation for something that you already confessed and let go of, that God's already forgiven you of, but now you've got that guilt and you're, oh, Romans 8, one's going to come to mind. And you're going to know, no, 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 there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Take that, Satan. Or 
when you get sick and tired of picking up in the house and doing the dishes and it just feels like you're unfairly carrying more than your fair share to the load in your office or you're ready to go into the break room and start an angry tirade and verbally vomit all over everybody, Philippians 2.14 is going to come to mind. Do everything without complaining or arguing. That's what happens. And none of this is possible without going deeper into the Word of God. Now, you'll find yourself vulnerable and weak, and that is, in fact, what many of you are. (laughs) Me too. But I would say we need to grow in this area because even our mission here at the Livingstones Church requires it. I mean, really. We keep talking about wanting to reach out to 42,500 people who live all around us, places like Monroe School, places like Hamilton and Hay and Marshall and Jackson and Riley and Lincoln. And, and we talk about Miami Hills Apartments. We talk about Southmore Housing Co-op. We talk about those people that live on Domwater. I mean, but for us to really be able to do that, if we really to do that, it will mean that we ourselves have passionately pursued God through his word and find ourselves in a posture and place where we could sort of be like spiritual fitness coaches to people who are just getting to know God. Like, really, we need to move to that place where we can actually train other people in the Word of God so they can experience that same life transformation that we want to experience through the Word of God. This is what it says in Hebrews 5, verse 12 to 14. This is, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. See, I don't want to live on milk. I just don't like it that much. But I can live on ribeye. I don't want to keep going back to the menu. The only thing offered to me is milk because that's as far as I've gotten. I want a menu that when I open it up, I mean, it's got a smorgasbord of all sorts of good, solid foods that are delicious in the meal that is Jesus. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying to the churches. I wish that you you should be teachers by now. I mean, you should already be fully equipped in this. You should already be fully trained in this. You should be at this level, but you're you're like little babies. You're still drinking milk, and thus I can't give you solid food. Over the past five years, and especially the last five years, we've enjoyed here at this church a great season of growth. And if you've been around for those last five years, you know that firsthand. You can remember what it used to be like five years ago. Even the very last quarter of 2011, as a church, we grew 24% compared to the fourth quarter of 2010. And as good as that is, even that is on the low side of our growth percentages that we've experienced in recent years. And I think we have more to come. I really do think we have 42,500 people to reach out to. And then after that, I think we're going to go take over the east side of South Bend, and then the west side, and then the north side, and then Mishawaka, and then Plymouth, and then you can just fill in the blanks. But in order to do that, we need people who have grown up from infancy in the Word to people who are mature and able to teach others. We need people who are able to to disciple those who are just getting started in their faith of Jesus Christ, to help them learn the elementary truths of our faith, and then to help move them to greater depths of maturity and service. We need spiritual fitness trainers. We have good works to accomplish on the south side of South Bend. We've got schools to bless. We've got neighborhoods that need to see restoration. We have apartment complexes that we need to become overpowered with love. We've got homes that need reconciliation. We have individuals who need rescued. This is what Jesus does. They are his good works that we're called to do. Listen again to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient and equipped for what? 
every good work. I think the thing that could stop God's mission on the south side through the Livingstone's church is simply us. Like, I, I think we could just stop it by simply saying, eh, forget the Bible. Uh, if we said, forget moving to the meal that is Jesus through this avenue of the word, I think in the end we will remain infants in Christ, and that with that will bring all sorts of problems and struggles. It's a sign that we're faithful to what God is calling us to and that we aren't a nursery. He's not called us to be a nursery. That's not our primary calling. And so we need infants to grow up, and we want to be a church that helps people grow up to be self-feeders. And so I want to commission you this morning to be spiritual fitness coaches. And I want to commission you this morning to grow up to be self-feeders. Because we know that, right? I mean, it's no big deal if you've got a, little, like if you've got a one-year-old sitting in their high chair to cut up their meat for them and help them eat. I mean, that's no big deal. But if my 16-year-old son still needs help with that, then that's a big deal, isn't it? That's when you want to go, dude, you're 16 years old. It's time for you to be able to pick up a knife and a fork and feed yourself, right? If you still are dependent that way, you have not matured as you ought. And sometimes I hear this in our language. When people leave a church and go to another, well, I'm just not being fed in that church. What I'd say in those sorts of things is that's on you. <laughs> I mean, someone who's been in Christ that long and needs somebody else has shown you you're not then a self-feeder. We need you. We're not going to change the world by having a few people on staffers and proficient in the Word of God. We'll change the world when over 800 of us, and listen to me, I mean, all of our all-inners, all of our regular, when 800 of us pursue Jesus with such a passion that it has driven them to the Word of God and equipped in that Word to such a degree that we are ready then for every good work. So let me close by giving you this in terms of just practical suggestions. One is if you don't have a Bible, you need to go get a Bible. If you can't afford a Bible, I want you to come and talk to me, and I'll make sure you get a Bible. And I'm serious about that. You can't afford one, we're going to make sure that you get a Bible. If you're asking what kind, because when you walk in, there's all sorts of this and that and the other, and I don't know what to pick or what to choose, here's what I'd recommend. I would recommend probably the New International Version. And there's lots of good translations. I like the New Living Translation. My favorite is the New Revised Standard Version. But my experience is most people seem to like the New International Version. It's a good balance between readability and being faithful to the original text. And in that New International Version, they have what's called a study Bible. Is that up there? This is what it looks like, the NIV study Bible. It comes in a hardback or a leather, and you get it in all sorts of ways. And I highly recommend it. Here's why. Because in that study Bible, at the beginning of every book of the Bible, it will tell you some things about it. It will give you the history, the background, the author, the audience, the themes, what's going on, and that will be very helpful to you. And it also will have at the bottom of the page, as you're reading through verses, when you get to a verse, you're like, uh-oh, I don't understand what that means. Oftentimes, if you go to the bottom at that verse, it will give you a quick commentary on this is what this is about. And I think it would be a very great tool to help you. So if you don't have a Bible, go get one. If you want to know which one to get, get the NIV Study Bible. I think it would be very helpful to you. And then number two, I want to challenge you to this. I want you to go home, get on your smartphone, or get on your computer and go to www.uversion.com. It is by far the best Bible app that I'm aware of, and it has helped me now for years read through the entire Bible every single year. And I want to challenge you this year to read through the entire Bible. Now, when you go to the, the uversion.com, what will happen is you'll click on the tab that says Reading Plans and go to the one that says the year reading of the Bible in a year, like a, the one-year Bible, and you've got lots of different options. You've got some that will let you go from Genesis all the way to the Revelation. You'll have some to be in chronological order, some to be in historical order. But if you've got spiritual ADD like me, hello, who am I talking to? It might work best for you if you pick one that gets you one passage in the Old Testament, one passage in the New Testament, one passage in Proverbs, and one passage in Psalms all on the same day. It kind of jumbles it up a little bit, and at least for me, I found it helps my spiritual ADD. So I highly recommend it. And then here's what I'd suggest you do. 
just start reading. And it will help you. It will give you reminders, and every day you can just plot where you're at. And you can put it on your computer, on your iPads, on your smartphones, really. If you're waiting in line somewhere, just pull it out, and you can have in less than 15 minutes the reading accomplished. And by the end of the year, you'll have read the entire Bible. I would recommend not starting in Revelation. Because that's what people want to do. Like, brand new Christians, like, well, Revelations is fascinating. Don't start there. <laughs> and don't start in Leviticus. And in this year, we're going to get an overview of the entire story of Scripture. Remember, it's going to take faith and bravery. But begin your reading asking God to reveal. Like, just pray, just as you get started. God, would you reveal yourself and the Lord Jesus Christ as I read this? And then here's another thing I'd offer to you that I would recommend. Have a notebook with you, and feel free to write down questions you have, things that don't make sense, things that are disturbing, and things that are confusing. Because it's legitimate. We all have questions. We all have confusion. We all have things that, that doesn't make any sense. But if we get trapped in it and get caught in it, then we will miss the rest of the reading. What I'm saying, write it down because it's fair. Write it all down, but don't get caught staring at the tree that you missed the whole forest. Does that make sense? So write it down so you don't get trapped in it, and then keep going on so we can get a big view of this is the force that is our God. And then we can come back to those questions and say, but what did this mean? And what about this tree? This doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. And I'm telling you, you're going to have that. And, and I do too. I still read passages and I think, what in the world? I still have passages that I simply can't explain that make no sense to me whatsoever. And I figure I'm in pretty good company. It, it, Peter himself will talk about Paul, about some of Paul's things are hard to understand. So I figure if the Apostle Peter can't figure out everything that the Apostle Paul said, then I'm in good company. And honestly, I still have things in the Bible that I wish weren't there. And it may, it may, I don't know. I mean, that sounds like you're not supposed to say that, but honestly, there are things that I clearly know are God's heart and his will that I just w wish weren't for my life and for the lives of others, and that's all fair. And I'd say write those things down in that notebook and start to keep a track of these are my questions, these are the things I'm confused by, and these are the things that I just simply wish weren't there. But we're going to move on, and we're going to see a bigger picture of the heart of God. And in it, it will have become our menu that will lead us to the meal that will sustain us and allow us to go deeper in the spiritual life, to be filled with Jesus, to go deeper. And that would be my challenge to you in the new year. Now, next week, we're going to talk about prayer, which is another essential element. So we're really going to dig into how do we go deeper in prayer for the same thing. But honestly, go to you, version. Take this challenge with me. Let's read the entire Bible in one year, less than 15 minutes a day. We can have it done like that by the end of the year. Okay, let's pray together. Father, we come to you and are grateful, as King David was, that you are a God who did reveal yourself to us, that you are a God who has chosen to say, this is who I am, this is my name, this is my character, this is my heart. And then, Lord, we want to know more of it. We want to know you. We want to know the one who sits at your right hand, the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to know Jesus with such intimacy that we, his voice is so crystal clear in our mind and in our heart that we'd never be confused by another. And so we pray right now, Lord, that you would help us, even in the avenue of your word, that you would help us move deeper into it, that we might become greater connected to you. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.